This is the Colloquium Podcast, produced by the MIT Comparative Media Studies Program, and it's October 22, 2010. I'm Andrew Whitaker. For this colloquium, we welcome Comparative Media Studies Professor Jing Wang. Professor Wang discussed her civic media project, called NGO 2.0, It's introducing social media thinking and tools to grassroots NGOs in underdeveloped regions of China. Join us throughout the semester for Colloquium Thursdays at 5 p.m. You can check the schedule on our website, cms.mit.edu. And as always, you can hear more of these podcasts on our site or in the iTunes store. I'm delighted to be able to present our, our speaker today. Um, I'm Edward Turk. Um, I've spent most of my career here at MIT, and having been a founder uh, or of the uh, Comparative Media Studies program, I've come to appreciate transdisciplinarity um, extremely well. Um, it seems to me that the most exciting and interesting work uh, intellectually, uh, and programmatically that goes on at MIT uh, has traditionally uh, broken and moved beyond disciplinary boundaries. Um, I can't think of anyone who embodies that uh, energy uh, toward transdisciplinarity than Jing Wang. Uh, I, ha I was on the search committee that uh, brought Jing to MIT, uh, and she arrived here, I think, in 2001. Um, and that committee itself, uh, which was searching for someone to occupy this very prestigious chair in Chinese studies, uh, was, was itself a multidisciplinary committee. There was me in, from French and film studies. There was a... Uh, Chinese historian, and if memory serves, there was someone, uh, one of these MIT specialists in um, uh, international surveillance, in other words, espionage. And uh, it was an odd committee, but it was a committee that unanimously, once we discovered Jing Wang, uh, uh, went crazy over her. Uh, uh, and yet, even at that point, I don't think anyone could have foreseen how she would move beyond the boundaries that she had already uh, exceeded. Um, Jing, as perhaps you know, has a PhD in comparative literature. And her very first book, which was a pioneering and uh, uh, award-winning book, um, was on a monument of classical Chinese literature. And we knew that this would be terrific for us, but we were also equally impressed by her second book, which was in a totally different area. It was in contemporary Chinese cultural politics. And one could see that Jing was uh, one of these restless, inventive minds that would work very well at MIT. Well, of course, since that time, she has done uh, extraordinary work in areas which uh, connect very well with CMS, uh, which, when we founded it, was intended to be a kind of applied humanities that would be transdisciplinary in nature. Um, uh, most of you probably know her book, 
brand New China, which deals with advertising media and uh, commercial culture. None of us would have imagined that she would have produced this book when she first came to MIT. Uh, and uh, she has, uh, she is currently serving on numerous editorial boards of international media and communications uh, journals. Uh, she is the chair of the advisory board of Creative Commons China Mainland, and uh, she was recently appointed to the board of advisors of the Wikipedia Foundation. So Jing, uh, uh, for me, embodies transdisciplinarity in, in an extraordinary way. And today, she's going to be talking about her new project, um, which is extraordinarily inventive and creative. Um, and it involves social action, meeting social media. Uh, and so that second book on uh, uh, cultural politics really had the germs of Jing Wang activist, uh, although we didn't fully identify it at that point. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce uh, um, our speaker, who's, the title of whose talk is NGO 2.0, uh, When Social Action Meets Social Media. Professor Jing Wang. I want to thank Edward for this most um, eloquent and wonderful introduction. I also want to thank uh, CMS for hosting my talk. Uh, since the beginning of this year, I've been giving talks about this project on different campuses, but primarily in the context of China studies. So it's very refreshing for me to break out of that context uh, to present the work to a more mixed community made up of uh, researchers and students coming from different fields on the one hand and of media practitioners on the other hand. Um, NGO 2.0 is a social practice I'm making which brings together social media and the grassroots NGOs in China. In very concrete terms, uh, the project introduces Web 2.0 thinking and social media tools to enable the grassroots to find each other, to collaborate, and to brand themselves better to the outside world in order to attract more resources. Now, it is clearly a communication project. But for reasons I will detail later, uh, we positioned ourselves first and foremost as a technology project. Uh, there's also a secondary positioning attached to the project. Uh, as you all know that uh, NGOs are change agents involved in making social innovation. So through this project, we also hope to uh, enhance their familiarity with the digital tools so that they may push their creativity to the next level. So seeing in that light, this project is also about social innovation happening at the grassroots level enabled by new media technology. And I may add that this phenomenon, the coming together of social media and the, non, uh, the nonprofit sector is becoming uh, increasingly a global phenomenon. Uh, there are different ways for me to talk about this uh, project. Um, the menu I prepared uh, for you today uh, consists of the genesis of the project, the program details, and the benefits that this project uh, brought to the grassroots NGOs in China, and of course, the research component what implications that this project 
may bring to uh, a new field of inquiry, which I named uh, social media action research. And finally, I will be talking about the challenges and uh, the obstacles that we faced in launching this project. Um, first, how did it come into existence? Uh, the journey began in 2006 uh, when I started researching on the topic of the public domain. And I became affiliated with uh, Creative Commons, which is an open content movement. How many of you here has, uh, well, have heard about uh, Creative Commons? Great, OK. Briefly speaking, it's a Web 2.0 legal infrastructure um, um, and uh, made up of uh, a set of uh, free licenses. Um, CC has become popular for many good reasons. And one of them is that we, as soon as, well, um, if we uh, begin to be able to create and, dispo uh, and, and uh, distribute and post our content by ourselves, then uh, if we started rebelling against the prevailing digital rights management, then new copyright questions came up. For instance, how do we go about distributing uh, our own content online while making personal decisions about how others will reuse our work? So all those questions resulted in the birth of this new legal infrastructure online, and that is uh, CC. The movement was founded in 2001, and mainland China joined the movement in 2006, in the spring. Uh, and I began my work. I got involved, as Edward uh, said uh, during his introduction, I got involved as the chair of the advisory board of CC China Mainland. And I began uh, uh, my work of envisioning a model that would benefit not only the urban digital elites in China, but also uh, the underprivileged living in the lesser developed regions of the country. Now that men in China should join the CC movement was of course a celebratory event. And during the launch event, uh, here you saw, oh, oops, um, Lawrence Lessig sitting in the middle. Um, uh, he was the mastermind behind CC. He made a very auspicious remark at the launch party. Let me quote him. He said, CC's global user community exploded uh, instantaneously with the addition of 1.3 billion Chinese users overnight. The end of quote. Now, he was very upbeat about the future of CC men in China, but I felt a bit dubious about such optimism not least because China's 700 million peasants could be theoretically excluded uh, from uh, the parameters of Creative Commons if we were to be overly obsessed uh, with the promotion of the CC licenses alone. Um, and as CC uh, slogans and practices spread over the globe, I also wondered if one concept fits all. Um, in fact, uh, during the Q&A session of the launch party, uh, I asked Lawrence Lessig what kind of feedback that CC headquarters had received from the local chapters of developing countries. And by, uh, by, by feedback, I actually meant local challenges posed to an essentially American paradigm. Uh, in other words, a paradigm made essentially in a post-affluent society. Um, understandably, Lessig didn't grasp my question because he wasn't aware of the center-periphery complex that we cultural studies critics are preoccupied with. Um, so um, he didn't give me an answer. 
long after the launch party uh, was over, I wondered uh, in what way we could feed uh, the indigenous CC practices of uh, developing countries back into the license-centric approach of global CC. Um, and more precisely, how do we meet uh, the enormous challenges of promoting CC licenses in those parts of the world where the digital elites are a minority? Um, my answer to that question was actually incorporated into the vision I made for the NGO 2.0 project. In my view, uh, the blind spot of CC Creative Commons, uh, the global model of CC, the blind spots uh, reside in its uh, assumption about digital literacy and it's in its lack of attention to the interest of the socially underprivileged. So about two years ago, I started conceptualizing a project that would put less emphasis on the licenses, but more on the fundamental spirit of Web 2.0 which gave life to open content movements like Creative Commons. And this project, because the NGO two-point project, uh, gained a life of its own very quickly. And today, it bears no direct uh, relations to the CC China project. I launched uh, the NGO 2.0 project uh, when I was in, uh, on sabbatical in China about a year and a half ago. Uh, and I set up a six-way partnership working with uh, two Chinese universities and two NGOs, grassroots NGOs, plus a corporate partner. Uh, Ogilvia Matter, which is a uh, transnational advertising agency with which I have established uh, a long-term uh, research re relationship. Um, our motto is we emphasize the necessity of integrating social practice uh, into academic theories. And we also uphold the importance of underground implementation. Um, the project has a multi-layered plot. And in order to unravel that plot, I want to show you a few pictures. And the pictures should give you a sense of the communication needs of the grassroots NGOs in China. You already saw the first picture. Uh, there you saw two children uh, sitting in front of a dilapidated wall um, in the um, Mingqing County in the northwestern part of China. And um, of course, the picture raises a lot of questions. What kind of futures are waiting uh, for the children who are living in a county undergoing drastic uh, desertification? And this is an even bleaker picture. Uh, this is a dam uh, providing water, electricity, and electricity to 250,000 people living in the Mingqing County. I'm showing you this picture because it was posted on uh, this website, the website of an NGO we're working with, their name is also Rescue Meeting. Um, they now, the organization now faces a dilemma typical of mid-sized grassroots NGOs in China. That is, their traditional website has outlived its usefulness. And the platform is uh, top-down, and it doesn't engage the public in a creative and interactive manner. Uh, in fact, the faster the number of those small websites like theirs uh, has mushroomed, the more insulated they grew from each other, further fragmenting the NGO scene in China, online NGO scene in China. Uh, and this is one set of the communication problems the NGOs, uh, the grassroots encountered. That's, that is, there are too many websites but no traffic. 
Uh, let's take a look at the third picture. Here you saw uh, teenagers with learning disabilities uh, participating in a sports competition sponsored by another NGO we're working with. Uh, they're called Lanzhou Huiling. They encounter a different kind of communication problem. Uh, because of lack of resources and technological know-hows, they don't even have a website to begin with. So they are unable to reach out to the uh, beyond the small crowd living in the small city of Lanzhou. And like Rescue Mingqing, they only operate within very small, limited local network. I showed you those uh, three pictures to give you a sense of the communication needs of the grassroots NGOs. And our project came into existence to address some of the communication needs. Um, as I have shown you, the two types of needs are different, but they are quite typical. Uh, rescue meeting needs to rethink their digital communication uh, strategy so that they, they can become more interactive with the public. And the priority of Lanzhou Huiling is to spread their content out there without having to build a website. Um, so how do we serve them? Before I get to that, uh, I'd like to pause a little and talk a little about, about the grassroots NGOs in China to give you a general background about uh, what they are, who they are. Um, the concept of grassroots was introduced into China um, via the World Conference on Women held in 1995. And ever since, the grassroots have grown very rapidly. But the total number of uh, the grassroots in China uh, fluctuates, depends upon what kind of statistical data you're looking at. Some people say there's a million of them. Others say, well, 190,000. Still, there are others who say, well, only 2,000 that are stable in organizational terms. Now, it's also very difficult to verify the exact number because more than one-third of the grassroots NGOs in China are not officially registered with the Ministry of Civil Affairs. Um, so they are not officially in the books. However, uh, because they fill tremendous service gaps, uh, neither the government nor the market can fill. Therefore, the government has put up, uh, has been putting up with uh, those illegitimate, uh, illegitimate organizations. And after the Sichuan earthquake, uh, in which uh, the voluntary groups and uh, the uh, NGOs played uh, a tremendous role in disaster relief work, after the Sichuan earthquake, the government's perception about the grassroots um, has become even more relaxed and friendly. Um, semi-autonomous groups, they are. I use the term semi-autonomous um, to uh, indicate the fact that all of them, whether they are officially registered or not, maintain uh, a decent and sometimes even a cordial relationship with the state. Now, here comes the major difference between Western NGOs and Chinese NGOs. In, the, in, in America, for instance, the NGOs uh, work, act as uh, uh, edgy pressure groups uh, with the aim of critiquing and uh, changing government policies. But in contrast, the Chinese NGOs have to work within the system. And I want to say that I want to emphasize that the difference is not ideologically rooted. The difference is uh, strategically driven. Uh, and being strategically minded means that the NGOs uh, cannot collide with the authorities, but they have to cultivate very good PR with the government so that they can get their work done uh, within the system. Um, 
And this difference may disappoint many of you here who, are, who may be clinging on to the dichotomous thinking habit, such as the state versus civil society, enslavement versus freedom, domination versus resistance. Um, but there is a paradox about China. That is, oops, okay. The paradox is that the closer you are to the government, the more trust you earn from them and the more autonomous you will become. Now, do they critique and criticize the government? Of course they do. Um, on, the, on, on the electronic bulletin board, BBS, and on social media, but they always criticize as individuals. They don't criticize as organizations. Um, so there are a lot of uh, critiques on the QQ platform, the most popular Chinese instant messaging platform, and over Skype. Now, um, now I want to, so that's the general background about the grassroots NGOs uh, in China. I want to move on to talk about the program of NGO 2.0 project. Uh, the program, there are three components. One, uh, one is uh, training workshops, um, and the second one is uh, uh, a, an open mapping platform we're building. And the third component is an NGO ranking system we are, uh, we are working on. Uh, back to uh, the first, uh, the training workshops. We uh, bring together uh, 30 to 35 organizations, um, representatives from 30 to 35 grassroots per workshop for a four-day intensive training of Web 2.0 thinking and Web 2.0 uh, tools. Uh, we, um, we, we, we do the workshops twice a year, and we have already uh, done four workshops. I want to give you snapshots of each uh, workshop that we held. This was in Guangzhou last uh, July. This was in Kunming uh, in Yunnan province, the southeastern part of China, and held in uh, Internet Cafe. This was the third workshop held in Xi'an, where the terracotta uh, warriors were excavated. Um, Xi'an workshop, this was also in Xi'an. And this was the fourth workshop we just did in July, uh, Hefei province. Um, what we are doing is to try to trigger a snowballing effect, which means that the trainees would go back to their home provinces, and they would hold a smaller scale uh, sharing, uh, Web 2.0 sharing workshop, like this one held in Lanzhou, very small, uh, working with even smaller local uh, grassroots uh, in their hometowns. And what we are hoping for, uh, what we are hoping for is to, um, is that they will grow into critical mass uh, at major sites, at major locations that we target. And these are uh, the number of uh, 120 NGOs we have trained uh, thus far. And um, this was actually an exercise that they were asked to mark them, uh, themselves on the Google map. Um, so, exit. Um, what do we teach them? Uh, we teach uh, two different kinds of courses, uh, strategic thinking classes that uh, consist of introducing the concept of sailing out to sea, borrowing other people's boat. And I will explain that later and listening 2.0 skills. And we also give them a toolkit um, to work with. Now, the concept of uh, borrowing, uh, uh, borrowing uh, sailing out in other, piece of, uh, in other people's boat, 
uh, meaning that you don't have to build a Noah's Ark in order to spread your content out there. That you, you know, there are so many different um, Chinese Web 2.0 platforms uh, that they can use, they can borrow to get their content out. Um, we also teach them uh, social media listening uh, literacy skills, um, teaching them how to do social media search, how to do tagging, and how to set up a simple uh, news alert. And then come the toolkit. Um, the tools, uh, the tool training uh, meet three different kinds of purposes, and I think the icons uh, pretty much tell you what the tools are for. This set of tools enable the NGOs to collaborate better with each other. And this set of tools, including Doodle, Wiki, Google Calendar, enable them to run their organizations efficiently and inexpensively. And this large set of tools uh, enable them to brand themselves better to the outside world, to do better uh, outreach. Um, as you can tell, this curriculum has a lot to do with uh, digital marketing. Uh, especially this uh, last component of the, uh, of the curriculum. And it's fascinating for me uh, to be able to test uh, the relevance of some digital marketing concepts uh, to uh, the NGO sector. Concepts such as positioning, listening 2.0, and blog marketing worked very well in both sectors. And I'm very glad to be able to connect my earlier work on branding and advertising to this project. Uh, in fact, I want to say that uh, the NGO 2.0 project is building the interface between the corporate CSR uh, programs and the NGO sector. And one of such uh, interface projects we are taking on is the, uh, I'm now moving on to the open platform. One of the interface projects between the corporate sector and the nonprofit sector is the repurposing of the Yoshahidi and open mapping platform. Uh, Yushahidi allows the public to aggregate um, data and information and to visualize it on, uh, on a map or timeline. Uh, we are tweaking the Yushahidi platform to turn it into a matchmaking platform. What does it mean? I want to, we want to uh, connect the demand side of things with the supply side of things. Demand side, the NGOs. Supply side, the corporate CSR programs. Uh, hoping that, okay, so what they would do, the NGOs will use this map to display, to post their needs. At the same time, we will display the various kinds of resources made available by the corporate CSR programs so that the two sides can find each other on this map. Um, and uh, the corporate resources include not just funding, but volunteer help from the corporate world, also um, uh, opportunities for project collaboration. Uh, the major companies, well, the companies we're working with uh, are the clients of Ogilvy. And you know that, uh, well, if you recall, that Ogilvy is one of the six partners of this project. So we're working very closely with uh, Ogilvy. And this uh, platform will be rolled out in a month, in November. Uh, I want to say that the platform is bilingual, and I'm very, very grateful to... Uh, the, to the two teams of uh, student uh, translators uh, at MIT in Chinese program. They are sitting in the audience. And my, sin my sincere, uh, my sincere uh, thanks to you and to Professor to Zhang Jin, Lao Shi, uh, who took charge of this uh, 
volunteer translation team. Um, meanwhile, to be a good matchmaker, uh, we're also establishing an NGO ranking system to evaluate the credibility and the transparency of the grassroots NGOs in our network. And this system is designed to enable potential corporate donors to uh, identify the NGOs they wish to work with. And this system, ranking system, will also allow the corporate donors to better leverage the web as a means of enhancing their social responsibility programs. And this is what Ogilvy and their clients will get out of this project, which is very important to them. All right, um, this is the basic outline of this project. Um, I want to uh, anticipate the questions coming from the audience. In giving talks, I have this habit. And there are two popular questions that people tend to bring up. One is, uh, how is the, how do, well, do the uh, Western provinces, uh, our target areas, do they have the internet infrastructure in place? And second question is, are the grassroots, if there is infrastructure, are the grassroots uh, located in those areas ready to leapfrog into Web 2.0? Um, prior to the first and second workshops, uh, we did uh, an online survey to figure out about two things. Oh, wait, I skipped. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Let me go back to the first question. I forgot. I jumped right into the second question. The first question, infrastructure. Um, to address the first question, uh, I would like to turn our attention to the government's uh, village to village project. It's like a universal service project uh, launched in the early 2000s. It was now completed. Um, this project enabled 98% uh, of small townships uh, to be wired up. And people living in 27 provinces at the Xiang level are able to log in uh, either through the office or through the information kiosks uh, set up by the local governments or at the internet cafes. Um, Um, the, uh, I don't want to emphasize uh, the penetration rate, um, uh, household penetration rate, because people living in rural parts of uh, China can't afford to pay for access at home. But the internet cafes are well populated all over uh, small town, um, county towns and small townships. And in fact, there has been a boom of internet bars, uh, township internet bars throughout uh, uh, the 2000s. So what I'm trying to get at is that um, the lack of digital infrastructure is no longer the issue for the Western provinces. So what is the issue? What drew the dividing line is the ability, is the capability of navigating online, navigating the web. And that's a real obstacle. Uh, so seeing in that light, uh, the training of uh, ICT, information communication technology, became a very important means of alleviating the digital divide, the information divide, separating the rural and urban China. So the answer to the first question is yes, there is digital infrastructure. Let's take a look at the second question. Um, are they ready? Are they ready for, the, uh, for Web 2.0? Or were we just imagining ourselves? Uh, prior to the first and second workshop, we did an online survey. We sent out 1,000 surveys uh, to try to figure out two things. First, is there a critical mass of the NGOs, our targets? Second of all, if there is a critical mass, what their ICT needs are. 
So we did this survey, and this is the finding. Uh, those are the findings of the first survey. Uh, one of the questions in the survey is, what is your most urgent need with regard to web usage? And 38% of them said, we want to uh, receive uh, uh, internet capacity uh, training that would teach us how to do instant messaging, blogging, wiki, social networking, uploading production of audiovisual files, and RSS, and so on. And 34% of them said, well, we want to know how to build a website. So our target is therefore made up of those two segments, the 38 and the 34% uh, of those who replied um, our survey. This was the, uh, the results of the second survey. And you saw the percentage uh, went up a little bit uh, for those who want to receive Web 2.0 training. And this segment stayed relatively the same. Uh, this slide is very interesting because it gave you an idea about how they logged in. And you can tell that most of them, 80% logged in through ADSL. And surprisingly, the, uh, the, the tiniest percentage, the 0.3, uh, logged in through the cell phone. And we can talk about that during Q&A. Um, so the survey sample looked a little bit small, uh, but uh, we, we got back about uh, 320 for the first time, for the second time, 420. The sample looked small. However, if we bear in mind, there are only 2,000 grassroots NGOs that are stable in organizational terms. We got one, more than one-fifth uh, re re responded, which was a pretty good uh, uh, re return. Um, largely speaking, we have a two-fold task. We need to train the grassroots that already had websites to start using Web 2.0 platforms and, and uh, think in the 2.0 manner. At the same time, we want to convince those that don't have websites to stop thinking about building an expensive and uh, labor-intensive and expensive uh, Web 1.0 architecture. We encourage them to leap right into leapfrog into 2.0 practices. Um, now, I want to um, mention that at each workshop, uh, we brought back old trainees uh, who uh, offered short courses to share with the new trainees uh, what they had learned in the previous workshop and how they applied the tools they learned to their daily organizational work. Um, and uh, to maintain the, uh, the momentum we built through the workshops, we set up a uh, discussion forum on QQ, uh, China's most popular instant messaging platform. And there, on that platform, we talk every day about technical issues, and we provide technical solutions, and we also talk about NGO uh, work in general. Uh, we have accumulated uh, more than 9,000 pages uh, since last July uh, over this uh, platform. Now, um, I want to move on to uh, the component of research, uh, which I think um, many of you are curious about. Uh, social media action research is a new term that I coined to indicate uh, the research opportunities that were opened up uh, uh, after the, um, opened up by the meeting of social action and social media. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, this project, NGO 2.0, is really a social practice primarily. Um, it's organic, and I had no idea about research when I launched it. Research came as an afterthought. Uh, one has to ask, 
what happens when traditional action research intersects not only with digital media, but also with social media. And another question uh, that came to mind is uh, what kind of implications that this new field brought to not only researchers working on action research, but also those who are interested in uh, investigating contemporary social change, uh, changes brought up by uh, the rise of social media. Um, let's take a look at the definition of uh, uh, action research. I, uh, I found this uh, 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 from the inventor of this term, Kurt Lewin. He defined it as a comparative research on the conditions and effects of various forms of social action and the condition and effects of various forms of research leading to social action. This is a rather bland uh, definition, uh, a little bit convoluted as well. I am um, more intrigued by another school uh, of action research, which is cooperative um, uh, inquiry uh, promoted by John Heron and Peter Reason in the early 70s. Um, that, that, uh, the, the corporate inquiry looks upon action research as research with people, not research on people. And this methodological vantage point is, is, is extremely relevant to today's new media environment. Um, what it means is that all active participants in nonprofit and uh, community practices are fully involved in making research decisions as co-researchers. So, my, so the question that is essential for me is, who are the co-researchers for the NGO 2.0 project? And what does the ecology of social media-enabled uh, mass activism look like today? Um, co-researchers in the old media environment are made up of two, two groups, right? The nonprofit folks and the researchers. But in the new media environment, uh, the ecology changed with the entry of social media because social media brought about two new types of co-researchers. One is empowered mass audiences and the commercial sector. And more specifically, the free agents and the corporate social responsibility uh, program directors. Um, I want to start um, by talking about the second um, group of co-researchers, the commercial, the corporate sector. We in academia are always very cynical about uh, the corporate world. Uh, despite the cynicism, though, um, today's action research needs to incorporate uh, the corporate sector, and in particular, its CSR-driven um, activities that utilized social media. Oh, oops, I want to show you an example. Um, particularly the CSR-driven uh, activities that utilize social media to trigger mass activism online. And here's an example. Ikuto Noha, it's a CSR program. Um, how many of you have, um, have played, um, have um, logged on to this? Ikuto Noha is a global uh, CSR uh, uh, program that nurtures Virtual trees collaboratively. Oops. Um, so uh, it nurtures uh, virtual trees collaboratively while making contribution to the actual environment to cope with uh, global warming. 
So virtual leaves are planted online, and really, uh, real trees are planted offline by the company, the NEC. It's a Japan uh, Japanese uh, media company. Okay, let's say your name, Edward, to honor you. NGO. Do you have a better message than what I'm going to type in? You have a better message? Okay. NGO 2O is here. Oops, what did I do? Uh, it's it's, it's uh, the, uh, I think the online stuff, but you will see the message. I encourage you to play this back at home. Uh, this is a classic example of uh, a classic example of uh, CSR, uh, how CSR uh, uh, program uh, could enable uh, mass activist work. Let me close this up. Oops. And they plant trees uh, on this very small island, Kangaroo Island, uh, in southern part of Australia. And I can't remember the ratio of virtual leaves vis-a-vis -vis the virtual trees, uh, real trees. Um, so that's a Japanese example. At, uh, the platform has actually uh, been seen in Taiwan as well. It's populated uh, globally. Um, another example I'd like to share with you is a Chinese CSR program, Sohu's Green Forest. Sohu is one of China's most popular um, uh, internet uh, portals, and they set up this uh, green forest uh, domain. You log on to uh, the site, and you begin to uh, play a series of quizzes, which will help you figure out the daily emissions of, your, uh, of carbon dioxide. This uh, platform was built with uh, built on what was built on the concept of low carbon life as a game concept. And those of you who are familiar with uh, the Free Rice Online program, this is a spin-off, a Chinese spin-off. So I did the test, and I had to contribute 21 trees. I have to donate 21 trees to redeem myself. Um, and if you bring, uh, bring on other friends, uh, the corporate sponsors will pay more, will donate more. Both uh, Ikado Noha and uh, Sohu's Green Forest follow this formula. You play, we donate. And this is a double win proposal well received by the public. Uh, actually, there's an even smarter move, uh, a, triple, a triple win solution. That is, you play, we donate, and charities win. And the best example is uh, Games That Give. Um, it's a company that, uh, uh, it's a new company that leverages the web to mobilize audiences to do good. You log on to their site, you start playing for the charity of your choice. Uh, and uh, Games That Give charges sponsors, and the sponsors advertise in, uh, on the website, but 70% of that advertising revenue goes directly to the charity you are playing for. Uh, messaging, of course, is important. It's delivered uh, throughout the website and embedded in the game experience. Messages not just about the advertisers, but about your, uh, the charity of your choice that you're playing for. So the better you do at the game, uh, the longer you play, the more you donate. Um, 
And it's, I think it's a very clever way of turning addiction uh, into, uh, into doing social good that guarantees gains for your favorite uh, charities. Another triple play example is Pepsi's Refresh Project, which allows people to submit ideas, good and uh, big and small ideas, to refresh the communities. Uh, uh, to refresh the communities. And then a crowd of Pepsi fans voted on the submissions, and out of which emerged the winners who were given prizes ranging from 5000 to 250000 given to individuals and organizations who could turn ideas into good projects uh, that make a difference uh, in their communities. All right, so that's the, co uh, the, the, the corporate sector uh, as co-researchers for the NGO 2.0 project. Uh, I want to move on to the other type of co-researchers, the free agents. The best example there, okay, first of all, the free agents are social media influentials who could start a networked fundraising campaign uh, with, uh, at a little sweat. And uh, the best example is Twitsville. Uh, it's a networked uh, fundraiser of a scale never seen before, raising funds all over the world via Twitter. Uh, I would like to share with you my own experience as a free agent raising funds for a grassroots NGO uh, I work with on Facebook. Um, this year is my big 6-0, and I used the causes tool to um, uh, to raise funds uh, for this NGO. Uh, the tool, um, the causes tool, lets you easily fundraise and recruit supporters for your nonprofit. It took me three weeks to get ready, uh, and I ended up raising close to $5,000. This number doesn't tell you all, uh, because a lot of people didn't want to donate directly to Facebook, so they sent me checks. So I raised about, uh, uh, 5,000 for this organization, uh, which helps out orphans and, uh, and uh, children coming from uh, one uh, single-parent families in Guangxi province in the drought area. Um, those are the friends who donated. Actually, several of you uh, in the audience also made a contribution to this campaign. Now, this experiment was very interesting. It nearly broke a friendship. Uh, it just tells you uh, strong ties do not necessarily do the miracle as you expect. And the most uh, generous giver was somebody whom I never met, uh, was a total stranger who was separated from me by more than six degrees. So the lesson I learned uh, through this fundraiser was that uh, social media provide excellent platforms for us to nurture loose ties uh, and to build a, a comradeship with uh, strangers and loose ties. Now, uh, I'm one of the free agents, but there are many free agents. Uh, I think the most notable ones are connected to CMS is the C4 researchers. They are making 2.0 citizen journalism tools. Um, and uh, the, the, the examples of free agents doing activist work are too numerous to cite. Um, in the last 15 minutes, I did the mapping of the, this new field uh, to uh, show you that social media action research doesn't just involve doing research with uh, the NGO folks and the foundation people. Uh, the corporate sector uh, and the free agents also are equally invested in shaping an active NGO 2.0 ecology um, for better uh, 
uh, which is a global phenomenon. Uh, now, I want to say that it is the entry of the corporate sector, uh, the intervention of business players, uh, for better or for worse, that complicated the research questions. And I'm going to show you uh, a list of research questions that I identified. Now, a field of inquiry won't be a field without debates. Uh, and I'm at the stage of uh, collecting those research questions. And um, I'm going to throw those questions open to you for feedback. Uh, the first question is, are social media just about bus building? Are they instrumental to creating behavioral change in communities and on the ground? Uh, those two questions converge to uh, converge on the current debate over uh, clicktivism. And the second question is, is social media posing a real challenge to the old organizational form known as the NGO? In other words, are we seeing the mushrooming of free agent models everywhere? Uh, what happens to scaling? Is there a connection between scaling and activism? Is it important? Is scaling important at all to activism, to the success of activism? And the third question has to do with crowdsourcing. We have read a lot of critiques about crowdsourcing in the advertising sector. But what about crowdsourcing in the nonprofit world? The question there is the issue of sustainability. Uh, would, that, would crowdsourcing impact the longevity of a cause, of a social cause and a social organization? And the, last, uh, the fourth question is about the cross-sector collaboration. Is that a good way to go, bringing together uh, the corporate sector and the nonprofit sector, like what we are doing with the Yoshahidi platform? Is that a good way to go? Are there challenges? And the fifth question has to do with measurement. How do we measure the impact of social media for social change? Now, this last question uh, looks like a quantitative question, but, it's, uh, but measurement also involves uh, like a qualitative uh, assessment. And this question is crucial. It brings me back to the mother of all questions. It's really about uh, measurement uh, in, a, in a more abstract sense, not quantifiable. Uh, could social actions spurred by social media help NGOs and social change agents become more capable of self-transformation and therefore become more creative, more just, more transparent, and more sustainable in the long run. This question brought me back to the NGO 2.0 project um, to a best practice I'd like to share with you as a way to address partially the question about measurement. Uh, this best practice was uh, made by a grassroots NGO we trained in July. It was, it, they were located in Hubei province, and their name is Greening Han River. After the workshop, they used uh, microblogging to do a 10-hour long live broadcast complete with instant mapping of the entire journey of water testing in, in, in this polluted river. And all those slides showed you that the rest of us who were not there in Hubei province, we, 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 we lived in different provinces in China, but we followed him. We followed the, the water testing team all the way around the clock. Uh, and we also shared about the findings of the water testing station by station in real time. Um, so what are the benefits of doing this kind of uh, uh, 2.0 experiment? For them, okay, number one, they attracted a lot of media attention about this event. Second of all, 
the whole process was rendered transparent. The annual water testing was the most important organizational test they do. The donors now could not only could see the results, but the donors could actually follow them virtually, station by station. And above all, was very, uh, very good for the organization. Uh, the, this experiment made such a, an impression on the board of directors uh, of the NGO that they decided to integrate 2.0 thinking into their programming strategies for the future. Um, so that's, that's my partial way of addressing the measurement question. And I'm sure during the Q&A uh, period, we will be able to um, discuss the other research questions. I want to save some time to talk about uh, the obstacles. And uh, last but not least, I want to talk about the elephant in the room, which is online, uh, online uh, internet uh, censorship. Um, online censorship in China has been, um, it's not new, um, it's, but it was relatively loose prior to December last year. And then things became very, very intense. Uh, what's new is that social media became a new target. Uh, we know that YouTube, Twitter, Foursquare, and Ning were all banned in China. And the internet was uh, scrutinized to a degree previously unseen since last December. In fact, every group on every single Web 2.0 platform is under surveillance. Uh, my encounter with the censors happened during the fourth workshop, uh, four days before the workshop, uh, an emergency directive came from the Public Security Office of Anhui Province, where we uh, held our workshop. They told us to cancel the workshop. Uh, we did um, some intense negotiations with the authorities. In the end, they said, okay, you could do one day, a one day workshop, on this beautiful uh, com um, campus um, just for one day. And you knew that we, our training lasts for four days. Um, so on the second day, they asked us to discontinue our classes. And they ordered us to go sightseeing. <laughs> and we did go to a beautiful uh, resort area uh, at a lake, uh, three hours away from the city. And over there, under the guise of uh, uh, this was where we stayed. Under the guise of tourists, we did another two days of workshop training. And of course, it's one of the best workshops we have ever done because we were able to combine uh, river cruising, a lot of fun, uh, with learning. Now, to move this project forward, uh, diplomacy and networking with the central government is crucial. Uh, I myself have reached out to the Ministry of Civil Affairs, the branch in the government that oversees the NGO uh, operations. In fact, uh, the Ministry of Civil Affairs held their own Web 2.0 conference last December, uh, last uh, October, and they sent me an invitation to attend the conference. It's called Smart Philanthropy 2.0. Now, we are in the process of uh, identifying open-minded officials. And I'm quite optimistic that um, uh, we will be able to build more bridges with, more, uh, with the more progressive elements in the government. I want to show you another thing. This is the list of uh, 
the winners of uh, NGO 2.0 contest co-sponsored by the ministry and Intel in Beijing uh, this January. Uh, coming from the uh, Technology and Science University, uh, I am a true believer in uh, creative, creative problem solving. And as one of our trainees put it uh, very nicely, he said, it's more important for us to remove the stones that tripped us over here and now rather than trying to remove an entire mountain away. And that entire mountain is the censorship. So we're doing one thing at a time. Uh, where are we now? We are about to finish the first cycle of this project. And I'm looking forward in the spirit of cautioned optimism to making more creative experiments with our grassroots NGOs to push this project uh, to the next level. This is my, uh, the end of my talk. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> There are lots of questions, and I guess we want people to speak into this microphone, even though it doesn't amplify the question. <laughs> so, who'd like to go first? Any hands? Okay. Well, we'll go way back. Uh, very exciting work. Um, I want to ask uh, a question about the elephant in the room. <laughs> uh, I'd like to have your reaction to uh, Jack Q's book on working class network society in, in China, if you know that. The yeah. argument there is that although there are a lot of internet cafes, the technical requirements for constant upgrading um, has imposed both surveillance but also controls on the terminals so that they are increasingly for playing games and not for surfing the web and doing the kind of work that, um, that you're doing. So I, I wonder what you have to say about that. Okay, thanks, Mike. Um, uh, you're right that most people go to, the youngsters who went to internet cafes are uh, very young people who want to play games. Well, by the way, recently I heard that real name registration is required for game players. Uh, but there is online activism everywhere. And how do I begin to talk about that? Um, uh, the BBS is actually the most popular space for online activism. Uh, I, I don't know if you are familiar with the uh, electronic messaging board. BBS uh, remains uh, the most uh, uh, a hotbed for political uh, contention. Um, in fact, uh, there are lots of uh, uh, rights defense groups, uh, rights defense websites that were set up um, uh, by individuals and voluntary groups, which actually gave rise to a new name in Chinese, online rights, uh, online rights defense. And citizen reporters have also appeared in China. Um, they, they took on themselves uh, issues that were often ignored by official media. And hardly, I would say hardly, hardly a year passed before uh, some new uh, internet incidents made national headlines. 
and the old ones came and disappeared because of they were being censored, but the new ones popped up. Um, so it is impossible to um, really monitor the internet, even though the government worked really hard. I have a personal um, anecdote to tell. Um, uh, a few days ago, the news about uh, the Nobel Peace Prize uh, was announced. And I had thought that my group you know, on the QQ platform probably didn't know about that because news was really was blocked uh, in mainstream media in China. So I went, uh, I logged into QQ uh, that evening, their time in the morning. And I said, well, listen, I have some news to tell you, but I can't, I can't do it on QQ. So we said, okay, let's go over to Skype. So we all went to Skype. And then they were waiting very anxiously for, the, for my big news. And I said, well, did you hear that Liu Xiaobo got the Nobel Peace Prize? And they were very disappointed. <laughs> I said, well, is that all? I said, yeah. <laughs> so they, not only they got the news, uh, about the same time, I would say, well, thanks to Twitter, a lot of the people, especially the, the, the urban digital elites, um, many of them signed on to Twitter. Uh, it's very hard for grassroots uh, uh, NGOs to climb over the Great Firewall uh, to access Twitter. But news traveled really fast, the small path news, right? So we had a, we had a discussion I shared with, with them my take on the impact of the Nobel Peace Prize on the internal politics in China. I care less about the impact of the news on China's image worldwide, which is predictable, but I care more about what that was going to do to the struggle between the moderates and the, between the moderates, progressives, and the hardliners within the party. That's what I'm more concerned about because it impact, it would impact the entire country. So back to your question, the central leadership's attitude toward online activism, um, they tolerate, uh, they tolerate uh, grassroots protests uh, against corrupt local officials. They even encourage. Uh, but of course, the central government, the, the, the leaders will not uh, allow direct challenges uh, uh, to their own legitimacy. Now, Jack Chu, that book uh, I, I knew about, but there's another, I think, more important book on online uh, activism in China, despite the Great Firewall and all the surveillance going on. Uh, the internet culture in China is highly contradictory. It combined prosperity and control. Thanks. <clears throat> What happened last December? I think uh, due, to, um, due to the riots in Tibet. Oh, in Tibet. And I think Xinjiang was also, well, there was the Uyghurs um, incidents in Xinjiang. Um, oh, why I said it was looser then, because uh, I went back to China every year. And prior to that time, I could I could, um, I could uh, use a proxy server to access um, Twitter and Facebook, but now you can't. You have to keep changing your proxy service. Yeah, almost every few days. So it's, it's tough. And this is a very treacherous period because of the transition politics. The old regime is stepping down, and the new regime is yeah, coming up. So we all are keeping a low profile. Other questions? 
Um, I have a, a question uh, touching on sustainability, but it has to do with actually the, the Web 2.0 topography or ecology in China. So uh, I, I like the idea of, you know, you don't need to build your own boat. Uh, these services are out there. Let's use them. Um, are the, uh, the 2.0 services that, that some of your uh, collaborators are using, are they uh, simply replacements for the ones that we're more familiar with here, mm -hmm, more mm -hmm. or less? They are copycats. Okay. Yeah. And I, when I observe a lot of I, what we might see as kind of emergent culture on, on similar platforms here, yeah. um, I, I'm increasingly aware of all kinds of vulnerabilities, not just mm -hmm. in, in the realm of political censorship, but mm. of course, you know, legal attacks and, and all kinds of other things. I guess I wonder, thinking towards sustainability, um, do you also have to think about perhaps someday building your own boat, you know, building a, a 2.0 ship? That you touched a sore spot. <laughs> uh, during the first half year of this project, we I, I set up a grassroots technology team made up of the bright and um, curious uh, among the trainees. Um, we had a team made up of 10 people. We, st we started building our own <laughs> two-mile platform, and we got two false starts. And in the end, I, I said, SNS platform is, is, is not feasible. If you want to do social networking, you go to kaixing.com, you go to renren.com. Why do you want to go to an NGO SNS? It doesn't make sense. So I, you know, our team um, picked uh, aggregate people aggregator, which is another open source platform. They synthesized the platform, and the result was not, you know, it was just. So I then said, well, let's rethink about what kind of platform we want to build to serve the grassroots. And we chose the Yoshahidi platform. And it has to be, uh, there has to be a purpose, a real practical purpose, building to the platform for it to be um, of any value to the grassroots NGOs. If we build just a 2.0 platform, there will be no traffic because they, everybody's building 2.0 platforms in China. Uh, and the NGO, the clientele of, uh, of grassroots NGO, I think is too small to sustain a completely independent 2.0 platform. We picked Yoshahidi because we think, okay, first of all, the data is alive. The, the NGOs could really go to the platform. They can, they can continually uh, uh, update uh, what they put uh, on the platform. And secondly, we want to link them to the corporate social responsibility folks. So if I can just follow up, yeah. I had a second question about that. I mean, I have a lot of friends uh, who sort of idealists who went to business school anyway and are are now uh, now seeking out um, you know jobs in these these corporate responsibility sectors, which also seem to be some of the first that dry up in tough times. So I guess I'm wondering how mm -hmm. sustainable you see that kind of alliance being as well, or is the is the situation different in China? Uh, China is always like a few steps behind uh, of the trend um, that is already taken on and uh, accelerating in this part of the world. As a matter of fact, as we are speaking now, the CSR idea just took off. Uh, so we are seeing the beginning of the enthusiasm of corporate CSR folks. We're talking about transnational CSR folks. And uh, there are tax benefits 
uh, for the corporations who uh, are invested in doing large-scale um, uh, social good. Actually, we're more interested in small-scale social good because we're dealing with grassroots. They don't need much to get their work done. Uh, I am, I myself, you know, am the, I'm a little bit cynical about uh, my, about the, uh, the, the corporate uh, input. Um, well, would this be recorded? Well, I think it's okay. Uh, we, a month ago, or maybe two months ago, just before I came back to uh, MIT, I thought I had uh, secured a corporate partner, which is Intel, Intel Beijing. And Intel and our team talked about building an independent 2.0 platform. And we talked about our idea of linking up the CSR and a nonprofit for about three meetings. And then during the fourth meeting, it was online meeting, I found out they changed the positioning of the platform without telling me, without telling us. And so, whoops, you know, they said, oops, uh, yeah, we did change our positioning. They are turning it into an educational platform to serve their own purpose. The next day, what was interesting was the next day they sent me a large bouquet of flowers. Without a note of explanation, I was really excited. I walked into the hotel. They said, well, a bouquet of flowers was waiting for you in your room. And I thought I had some secret admirers. But <laughs> turned out to be Intel. And from the beginning to the end, they offered me no explanation why they changed the positioning of the platform. Of course, I said, no way. We're not continuing our collaboration with you. So we withdrew. We withdrew and quickly, very quickly, we put our um, act together. We started the Yoshahidi platform. I have a question that sort of yeah, just sure. builds on that. Mm -hmm. And it, it just takes it from a more uh, historical view and reflects, I, I suppose, Western ignorance um, in our education um, and in my uh, knowledge of current events in uh, China. But if you look at the history of Western capitalism, it took a long time before corporations and social yes. responsibility right. were two concepts that could actually come together. And as, uh, and, and, and of course, tax incentives have, have been a major uh, um, uh, element in uh, creating um, uh, that uh, movement. Oh, um, and as you, you yourself implied, it's still small money when it comes to what an NGO would need, just as it is relatively small money for, let's say, uh, research, even at MIT, when a huge corporation gives uh, money uh, here. But this, um, so I'm wondering if you, if you could give us a sense of whether within what is nominally still a communist ideology, whether the urge toward helping one's fellow citizen um, uh, is any different from uh, what you find in U U.S., I guess, well, if, you, if one can still speak about U.S. corporations since everything is so transnational, um, and uh, um, whether the advertising potential of the internet is in fact a major spur for these corporations? Um, okay, I think we're talking about um, 
the, uh, the blurring of uh, cross-sector boundaries. And I could, you know, this is a fairly new phenomenon, even for this country. Um, and of course, um, uh, 2.0 helped uh, the, cross, the mutual crossover to take place. Um, but it, 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 it takes some time for me to explain. Uh, China is no different from the US. Uh, this is an issue, one of the questions I raised, uh, the issue about uh, cross-sector uh, cross collaboration. That's another way of putting it. Uh, uh, at the same time, when nonprofits are developing um, uh, profit-generating enterprises, known as the social enterprises, the corporations, as my talk has illustrated, um, at the same time, nonprofits non are creating social enterprises. Uh, the, co uh, the, the companies and the corporations are becoming more active in the social sphere, as my talk uh, illustrated. So out of the mutual crossover emerged new structural uh, alternatives and a, a greater willingness to experiment. That's a general comment on this phenomenon of mutual crossover between the two sectors. Uh, there are other elements converge to reshape the social sphere and to give new incentives for the CSR uh, programs to, 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 to get to speed. One of the major issues has to do with people who are sitting here, the millennials, people who were born between uh, 1978 and 1993 uh, the millennials actually are the largest uh, living generation, uh, outnumbering the living baby boomers. <clears throat> the millennials are very good at um, working collaboratively, interactively, and entrepreneurially. Uh, uh, um, so they are, I think, essential to the desire to, uh, to not to identify their activism uh, with uh, any particular NGO or with any NGO at all. And there are more and more people working the corporate world. Uh, that's one thing. Um, and um, uh, as for China, there's always the desire to catch up. Uh, like every year, you see new Western models being talked about and being replicated. So the CSR, uh, the, the enthusiasm about CSR partly has to do with this new phenomenon of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, cross-sector uh, traffic, uh, the rise of the, uh, the millennials, and the desire of China to catch up on the newest trend, whether it is an academic discourse or a corporate uh, practice. So a lot of factors, I think, enter into the beginning of, uh, uh, of a fascination uh, in the corporate sector about branding themselves better through doing social good. And I think that has to do also to do with the fact that the idea of branding is taking root. It uh, is taking root in China, in, in corporate China now. The concept, ha the, the, the idea of branding, which is different from advertising, branding itself, corporate branding, branding itself um, has, um, has become popular in China only in the last five years. So now the domestic uh, corporations are also interested in, in branding and positioning. And there's nothing more effective than 
branding yourself as a uh, socially concerned um, uh, corporate citizen. So, yeah. <clears throat> uh, excellent, excellent talk. Uh, I'm wondering about the university system and the way in which the university system interacts with the NGOs and the fact that uh, uh, at the educational level, a certain amount of work has to be done there in immersing people in the various forms of media. Uh, presumably, they are moving out into the corporate world, mm. and somehow uh, the NGOs are uh, interacting with both of these areas. So could you say a little bit about uh, the educational system and how this is a factor in this? set of uh, questions here. Okay, um, I think there are uh, more and more universities that are interested in setting up uh, NGO institute, research institute. Is, is, I don't know if that's what you had in mind. Um, but I would think that uh, the talents uh, that work in, corporate, in the corporate world who are also interested in doing good, doing social good, some of them came from the <coughs> NGO workers themselves. I didn't have a chance to tell you that the NGOs I work with uh, oftentimes are led by one or two major uh, like leaders. And they all had two jobs. It, it, it is not unusual at all for, one, for an entrepreneurial person who has idealism to have one job deeply rooted in the corporate world but doing NGO work on the side. As a matter of fact, most of my friends who are very young and entrepreneurial in Beijing and Shanghai, they all have three or four jobs at the same time. I don't know how they did it. But talent training is uh, one of the major issues for NGO sector in China. I don't know about here. Is that a big issue? I, I guess so. The millennials, as I, as I said uh, previously, the millennials are not interested in uh, being tied to any NGO. If they want to do good, they, are, they have digital literate, uh, literacy. They do it by themselves. You know, they, they, they tweet and they, they do all kinds of uh, social networking to fulfill their own social service goals. Um, so I think in this country, there's also a crisis about uh, uh, succession. Uh, who is going to succeed, I mean, to, is that the right word, succeed? To succeed uh, the director of a, of a big or, mi or medium-sized NGO, American NGO. That's a big crisis. So the idea is that American NGOs have to adapt, have to adapt to the new environment, which incorporates the rights of the millennials. It's not just Web 2.0. It's a new generation who has no interest in being tied to any organizations, and they are more interested in creating new structures and networks to uh, fulfill their own social goals. Um, so back to China, there are more and more schools that are talking about nurturing talents who will go back to the NGO sector. My estimate is that it's really hard for the NGOs. If, if you have a family, you know, a couple, if both of them are doing NGO work as their only job, they're going to starve. They, what the pay for NGO uh, work is very, very, very low. Uh, you, you just can't imagine it. So there are many, many uh, singles 
single men NGO workers in our group. That's a big problem because they don't have money to get married. Getting married in China is very expensive nowadays. Yeah. So talent, I think, comes through the NGO sector and through education at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you. I think this is a very exciting talk. And uh, I have a question which is somehow related to the first question, as opposed to um, how do we combine, uh, combine like, um, the fun game, online game playing, game playing with um, the supposedly lofty ideal of environmentalism? And uh, um, so, uh, b because I was thinking um, that uh, in the US, um, you know, um, we see nowadays that um, we've come into a, kind of like a new new era of environmentalism. You know, it's more like commercial, um, you know, corporate-led environmentalism uh, con comparing to the 1970s, like countercultural uh, political activism. So um, there are lots of criticism about making environmentalism fun because that's supposed to dilute the messages. Uh, do you think that social, when we combine social media with environmentalism, it kind of, you know, threaten the environmentalism, you know, kind of also dilute the messages and kind of alter the motivations for the environmentalists to participate? You're actually asking whether online activism is killing activism as we knew it in the 60s yes. and 70s. And this question has to do with uh, the first question that I brought up, uh, the debate on clicktivism. Uh, the uh, the ikadonoha, uh, the clicking, uh, planting virtual leaves, and then have the virtual leaves donated, uh, turned into real trees off, offline. That's a debate. Uh, I, I, I think many of you uh, probably contributed to the debate over clicktivism, which means the clicktivist critique uh, is about making activism too easy. Another term for clicktivism is slacktivism. Uh, uh, so a lot of complaints about uh, online activism being killed by uh, cost marketing, uh, that internet activism is rarely replicable, I have, I have very mixed feelings about that. I think clicks, of course, is not everything. Uh, clicks, however, is, is part of a portfolio of other actions, right? Face-to-face -face meetings, advocacy, storytelling. But clicks are entry uh, to more social, uh, to, more, uh, to doing more activist work. I think, my, I, I think the whole point about uh, online activism versus activism has to do with the changing concept of the notion of membership, of volunteerism, and of civic engagement. All the factors that I, that I talked about uh, earlier, for instance, network is making work organized in different ways, in new ways. And we, I talked about the millennials not wanting to be you know, tied to an activist organization. Uh, third of it um, was the rise of the concept of micro-volunteering, which means volunteer work uh, 
that people volunteer in very small and convenient ways that do not require longer-term commitment to a cause, to an organization. And I, I believe that uh, with, with um, uh, the, our candidate from NYU who talked about anti-utopianism, Stephen Duncombe, uh, he was here last uh, semester talking about the changing concept of doing social activism. We cling on to the old idea of, uh, of utopia, of activism that could uh, you know, start an upheaval, overthrow an old re regime. Time is changing, whether we like it or not. I think we're dealing with micro-activism. Do, do you want to call it not activism? I, I don't know. And besides, I, I think before we come to any conclusion about the pros and cons of uh, collectivism, we have to do research. How do we know people who click on to the, uh, the Ecuador know-how platform are not activists? I mean, it's, we have to do research. We can't just theorize from the vacuum. So I don't have a real answer to that, but uh, there are a lot of uh, issues, the interplay of forces that create new norms, new structures, new practices, and besides, uh, more importantly, new opportunities to solve problems in ways that blur traditional boundaries. Okay. No, I oh, I thought you had raised your no, hand. No, I was going to. Oh, okay. <laughs> Who was it here? Hi. Um, I was wondering if the legitimacy of some of these NGOs uh, causes problems for a project like yours. Like I know in the United States, uh, nonprofit organizations would have to do filings with the government. Is there any method of checking whether you, the money donated to a Chinese NGO goes to the correct causes? And if so, what are you doing about it? Um, I think I, um, I, I mentioned uh, uh, in my talk that the, even though they were, assignment, uh, they were not considered uh, legitimate, uh, they function. And the local, of course, the local government knew who they are. And the question you raised has to do with transparency, um, the, the issue of transparency, whether they use the donations uh, uh, in a way that the donors prescribed. Um, and I think Web 2.0 could help. They, none of you asked the question how we picked the, the trainees. We picked our trainees from the pool of the respondents who, who replied to our survey. And we also, we, we don't just pick anybody to train. Uh, we also had a very well-established NGO uh, partners, and they also made recommendations. So the people we trained are sort of the, uh, the elites of the grassroots. Um, there are even, um, there is another view about the number of uh, really good, you know, accountable, good accountable grassroots NGOs. According to that theory, there are only 500. Um, uh, sometimes it's not that they don't want to make their spendings public. They don't know how. But if you, uh, for those grassroots NGOs that have websites, they publish their annual spending. Uh, even the Chinese donors ask for that. So that's not a problem. But they are not part of the, uh, the official, uh, they're not under the official jurisdiction. As a matter of fact, speaking, speaking about being corrupt, I'm more worried about official organizations. I'm more worried about gongos. 
uh, about state-funded uh, uh, foundations than the grassroots NGOs. It is really hard for a grassroots NGO to survive in the Chinese environment. So only crazy people would do that. Uh, and they, to, to be able to survive, to function, to provide the social service they do, they have to be extremely, they are, they are constantly under vigilance. <clears throat> they, are, they are very vigilant about what they do. But the, this program, you know, this project, some of the tools will help them make their uh, operations more transparent. For instance, the Han River, the water testing that I showed you, that's one way of making uh, their task uh, transparent to the donors. Anyone else? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, I was just wondering with what you were mentioning about how difficult it is to work um, for a nonprofit organization in China, did you find that there was um, this feeling of solidarity with your trainees um, and did they kind of inspire one another to do work in a different way? Um, and are there examples of that that you've already seen through your process? Yeah. Sure, great question. Um, I was reading a, a very popular book about the impact of uh, social media on the American NGOs. It's called, it's written by Beth Cantor. She is an advocate of uh, NGO 2.0. Uh, she wrote about uh, American grassroots NGOs working as silos, like silos. So she was advocating that they broke down their barriers and Web 2.0 thinking and tools would provide that, uh, that tool, uh, would, would provide the means for the for the breakdown of the fortress mentality um, that American NGOs are uh, known for. In China, the grassroots have so limited resources, they cannot afford to work like silos. They do a lot of karma banking. Uh, are you familiar with that term? Karma banking, meaning that people help each other out without expecting an immediate return. It's actually deeply rooted in Chinese culture. Uh, so without karma banking, you don't get anything done. Examples, plenty on our QQ platform. Uh, about a month ago, uh, the grassroots I raised the funds for, uh, Amaanta, uh, Ama their leader was traveling in Beijing to attend a conference, and he fell ill while he was in Beijing. He got pneumonia, and he had no friends. He got stuck in Beijing, and he lives in Guangxi, and it's a long trip. And together, our group raised funds to send him, to buy a ticket to send him home. Well, that's, that's not real collaboration, but collaborations happened on the platform every day. Every day I was locked on, there would be requests, donating clothing to one school, uh, donating coal, Calls to uh, normates, um, to the children um, in Mongolia to survive the winter. People helped out. And it amazed me that we could raise well, that plane ticket to fly the guy back to his hometown. It's 1,600 kwai. It's really not easy. It's, it's quite expensive because we had to buy a ticket the next day. It's very expensive to do so. And we raised the money for him like in a few hours. But 
donations of clothing and other uh, materials uh, to help out other NGOs happened every day. At the beginning, I took uh, notes, but now it's like every day. So they, they do collaborate a quite a great deal. I think the I think the, what is unique about our, com uh, our community is that they, they spread across six issue domains. Usually in China on QQ, you have an environmentalist group. You have a poverty aviation uh, discussion group. But our group consists of NGOs coming from six domains. So they, I think they were very happy that they found uh, people working on different uh, issues but who live in the same province. And a lot of collaboration happened uh, between uh, NGOs that do different uh, work. Because there's always competition between the, uh, the, uh, the environmental NGOs. However, an environmental NGO may collaborate very well with a, with a, a women's group, a women's uh, a, a women's rights uh, group. So that kind of a cross uh, issue area collaboration is happening quite a lot. Thanks. Anyone else? Um, hi, thank you. Um, in my limited experience with NGOs in the United States and in the UK, um, I've witnessed that a lot of resources are often um, taken up by reporting to donors, uh, understandably so. Um, and I wondered w what your vision is for the kind of reporting and transparency and measurement um, that Web 2.0 and NGO 2.0 allows for um, in the long term alleviating some of the internal resources and time that goes into traditional reporting, whether it's, mm. you know, through surveys or, or other, other traditional means. Um, just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. OK, uh, this is uh, uh, a part in the project that I didn't um, talk about uh, during the presentation. Uh, we have secondary collaborators. Uh, one of our secondary collaborators is the business school uh, <clears throat> of the University of San Diego. Uh, what they are doing, they are working with Ogilvy to design the ranking system. The ranking system is all about um, transparency. Of course, different layers of transparency work that can be done uh, to, and well, I think accounting, uh, reporting on uh, auditing, uh, 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 it, well, is part of uh, the transparency work that is uh, being uh, that needs to be done. That has been designed. My worry is that, you know, there are lots of uh, evaluation systems that are. Uh, available in the UK, in the US, but how applicable they are to grassroots NGOs in China. I don't know. I'm waiting to see the design of the evaluation, um, uh, the NGO evaluation system. So what, what you talked about, making the reporting transparent is part of that, uh, that work. Uh, so is there any time for other questions, or should we wrap it up now? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, on behalf of everyone, uh, I'd like to thank Jing Wang for this extraordinary presentation. Thank you. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you.